Hello and welcome to a Flatpack History of Sweden, the podcast where a Brit and a Swede tell you about Swedish history one piece at a time. And for most of this episode, I won't be that Swede. Unusually, usually I'm the Swedish one, but not this time because this is our very first interview episode that sadly I had to miss because I was quite sick that day and didn't want to be coughing all the way through the recording. And as you can probably tell from my quite gravelly voice, I'm still a bit uh, sick, I still have a bit of a cold, but I hope it won't impact the quality of this bit of the recording too much. Don't worry, it's just a regular old cold and I'm sure I'll be fine very soon. But I'm very jealous of you, Chris. Yeah, that's because I had the pleasure, the absolute pleasure, of speaking with Thomas Neyman, a PhD student at Stockholm University, who is an expert on our main topic for today, uh, 1361 and the Battle of Visby. I was kindly, very kindly, allowed into the Swedish History Museum here in Stockholm on a Monday when it's uh, usually closed for the general public. And if you follow us on Facebook and Twitter, we actually went around the museum as a regular visitor a few months ago and really enjoyed it, so we've had a chance to go back. When we went there as regular visitors, we looked around their great exhibition on the Battle of Visby knowing that we were close to covering it in the timeline of the podcast. So we got in touch with uh, them and the museum staff, along with Thomas, who were so kind as to show Chris around, talk about the battle, walk around the exhibit with our microphone for a private discussion about the battle. We'll let him explain more, but Thomas was really the perfect person to speak to But despite this being a bit of a different episode, we can't start without a Swedish phrase. And this week we have... Den enes död, den andras bröd. Rhymes, and it means one man's death, the other's bread. Uh, So it's quite similar to the English phrase, one man's meat is another man's poison, which is apparently a phrase, but I don't remember ever hearing it. But there's lots of very similar phrases that are along these lines. Basically, it means that one person's downfall or failure can be another person's breakthrough or success. Say, for example, a person is fired from their job and the company hires someone new. Now, for the person who got fired, that might be their downfall, leading to a whole spiral of negative things. But for the person who got hired, it might lead to lots of positive outcomes, But those positive things wouldn't have happened in the first place if it wasn't for the fact that someone else first failed. So one man's death, one man's negative thing, becomes another one's bread, positive thing. Could you say that about the Battle of Visby? Yeah, was it the Gotlanders' death and the Danes' bread? Yeah. Well, it was, it was quite literally death yeah, exactly. for quite a few Gotlanders. Yeah, maybe they, the Danes got some bread afterwards. I'm sure they did. But yes, last time we saw how Sweden got into all sorts of trouble once more. First with King Magnus's sons causing drama, as every royal son seems to do at some point or another. 
But then the main character of this episode, Danish King Valdemar, also manages to retake the southern counties of Sweden, most importantly Skåne, from the Swedish king. Whilst this was all going on, we saw how Magnus had some time for law reform, with the Magnus Eriksson Law of the Realm starting to become a thing at this point in time too. Yeah, we can't forget some good old law reform. <laughs> That's summarising the story from last time ever so slightly, but we'll let Chris and Thomas pick up the story in the museum. Yes, um, but before we jump right into that, I'll quickly say that the interview is going to be split into two parts. The first is us sitting in the museum cafe, and the sound quality is pretty much the same as a normal episode. However, when we go up to the exhibit, we're using a handheld microphone, plus the rooms weren't exactly designed for recording a podcast, so um, it's a bit echoey at times, and sometimes the, the sound levels go up and down a little bit. So bear with that change in quality. I have fixed it up a bit during the editing, and it should be fine. Just don't stop thinking your speakers or headphones are, are broken when we get to the second part of the, the interview. Yeah, but for now, let's move a few kilometers across Stockholm and visit the Swedish History Museum. And now with the magic of technology, we're now inside the museum. We're actually in the cafe. It's a great place to be. And we're really excited, or I'm really excited, to be here with Thomas Neumann, who is uh, going to talk to us all about the wonderful stuff that's been happening at uh, in this time in Swedish history. And most importantly, the Battle of Visby. So, uh, Thomas, can you let our listeners know a little bit about you, why you like or are interested so much in the Battle of Visby, and uh, how come you're working or have worked here at the museum? Yeah, sure. Thank you very much. I'm a PhD candidate in history at Stockholm's University, and uh, the Battle of Visby was the subject of my master thesis. And I also worked here on the exhibition for about one and a half year part-time. And I'm also currently working on a book about 1361, so I'm pretty much onto this subject of 1361 and, and Gotland and Visby and the Battle of Visby, etc., etc. And try to explain why I find it interesting. I think we need to go back to actually 1361, mm. because in the spring 1361, we had the people of Gotland that 11 years earlier had had the plague come mm. in. They were coping with the effects of the plague. And then in May, you got a letter of warning from the Swedish king that an invasion was going to perhaps come to Gotland. And then their lives were cut in midlife. It ended, and they ended up in the mass graves outside the city of Visby. So what I'm actually interested in is uh, their lives, their fate on that grim day, uh, summer day of 1361, the society that they were part of, that's very important for me because they, they really touched me, their fate. The other part is that the mass graves from this battle is unique in the world. We have about five medieval battles where we have actually have mass graves from. And the next one is about 400 persons that they excavated. But here we have about 1,200 mm. persons uh, taking up from the graves. So it's huge. It's, it's a lot of people. Uh, it's also it's the only mass medieval mass grave with armor in it. Mm. So that's also unique. And also, except uh, the, these mass graves, we also have a battlefield, which is uh, the battlefield from the Battle of Mesterby that occurred just a couple of days before. We also have a very 
modern strong notion about what happened. If you talk to a Gotlander today, they most certainly would have an answer to what happened on that day. Uh, and also it's one of the few medieval events in Sweden that most people, common people in Sweden, have some kind of notion of. Mm. So what I'm interested in is how is the modern narrative and how is that compared to the artifacts, what we could say from the sources about 1361. Yeah, that's really interesting because in some of our really early episodes, you have half a line in a text which said, yeah. Sverka beat Eric in a battle. And that's all we know. We don't even know yeah. where it was or anything. And so I think that was when uh, Orsa and I came to the museum here a couple of months ago. We were really surprised and really impressed in a way at how much information you can have from something that is you know, nearly 700 years ago. So it's uh, to have so much information, it's yeah. really, really interesting. And you should also take into account when you, you have this exhibition, I think it's, it's great. But it could sometimes be in some details. You should be aware of this was done eight years ago. Mm. And we are actually three persons working with uh, the, the finds. I'm working with the historical aspects, the, the society in a wider site as a historian. We also have archaeologists, uh, Maria Lindström working with the Battle of Mesterby, as a PhD in uh, Uppsala. Mm. Then we have uh, osteologists that have been working with the bones also. So there are stuff happening with this material mm. uh, in the research, which could make that sometimes perhaps small things could be discussed that is actually in the this exhibition today yeah it's not all finished there's, no, still, no, no. there's more stuff to come yeah exactly so you mentioned uh, a bit of the background to the battle and especially we we did a whole episode on the black death in sweden and how that just completely changed everything in society so what would you say are the most important bits of both political but also societal background to who who are these people on gotland and who are maybe the danes who are coming yeah it's a pretty hard subject, I yeah. have to say, because if you go into the politics of the 1460s, it's, uh, you have very many uh, actors. Mm. Uh, so if you're just trying to take it very short, we had Skåne and Blekinge in the uh, southern parts of Sweden, uh, which have been both by the Swedish king in the 1440s. And uh, of course, the Danish kings were not so happy about it, but they were actually not owning those landscape at mm. the time. Perhaps you talked about this. Yeah, we spent, where, where Valdemar basically, when he became king, he had no real country no. to begin with because the, the previous kings had sold everything exactly. and all these German counts were owning exactly. everything. So. <laughs> so, so then we come up to 1459. Then Magnus and Valdemar actually were cooperating mm. to uh, take the, the Scania landscapes back from these Germans. Mm. But then in 1460, Magnus made a deal with the Germans. And then, of course, Valdemar got mad about this and took, it, uh, took them for himself. So suddenly, uh, King Magnus stood with all his debt, but uh, no Scania landscape. So he had a lot of problems. Uh, and then in 1461, King Valdemar was standing in Blekinge, most likely, with his troops. And he had to make a choice where to go. Because troops, they are expensive, so he mm. needs to do something. He could, could go up uh, into Kalmar, but then there you have the representatives from the Counts of uh, Holstein, uh, the Witsen family, and a really strong castle. And obviously, he chose to go take the periphery instead. So you had these uh, German Counts to take care of, you have the Swedish, you have the Danish force itself with Valdemar, and then you also have the Hanseatic League, mm. that of course Visby was a part of the Hanseatic League, and there you also have the uh, rural Gotland population mm. that was a part also into this. So, yeah. 
yeah, there's a lot of people, and everybody's changing sides and uh, yeah. yeah, making deals with different people. And we've covered previously about how, like, like you just mentioned, that it was Gotland was a thing, but it was sort of half independent, half Swedish, and yeah. then there was the people in Visby and the people not in Visby. Yeah. So when Valdemar is going to Gotland, decides to go there, is this more of an attack on Magnus and Sweden, or is it is he looking at it more of it's some way it's sort of independent that he could try and get uh, i would say it's an attack uh, against magnus and sweden yeah. uh, because you have like during the 14th century actually starting from the late 13th century gotland gets more and more integrated mm. into sweden uh, they have still some uh, special privilege as they don't actually need to raise troops to defend mm. the rest of the Sweden. That you can see in the charters uh, from 1461, the letter of warning, for example, mm. doesn't stress that they should go on, a, on an expedition that most likely was called like a general call for the defense of the realm for the, for the rest of Sweden, but they instead had that they should keep guard, etc. And that the Hanseatic League, they were... Uh, dragged into this war afterwards because in the September they, uh, the Swedish king made a deal with the Hanseatic League and then they got into the war so mm. previous before that they were actually not engaged in mm. this conflict yeah I mean, we've seen how like, this, the Hanseatic League is becoming more and more of an entity that's sort of yeah. taking these big decisions instead of you know previously it was oh we'll trade Visby we'll yeah. go to Riga and make a trade deal with Riga but now they're yeah. sort of actually taking these really big decisions in terms of wars and things so that's uh, something we'll look forward to talking about more but of course Valdemar didn't go straight to Gotland he stopped off uh, on Erland on the way so uh, can you tell us a little bit about why he might have done that and what happened when when he was there yeah exactly so so he was standing in Blekinge by the probably east coast on Blekinge he had actually uh, constructed during sometime 1460-1461 constructed a stronghold at the border to Sweden there. Uh, so he raised uh, a stronghold there uh, and then in 1461 he took his troops, uh, made a landing in Öland, uh, most likely according to the chronicles fought a battle with the uh, farmers on Öland uh, and he said he killed about 500 of them and then he took the castle of Borholm. And after that, uh, he went for Gotland. And if you sail from Borjom, that's on the west coast of Öland, and go up, sail up the coast of Öland to the north top, and just uh, sail straight east, then you uh, arrive to Gotland in the southwest part by the islands of uh, Karlsöarna. There are two islands just outside the coast there. Uh, and then uh, you have the most likely landing point, somewhere about nowadays Klinteham or down to Fröjel. It's interesting that there's also farmers on uh, Erland who are getting involved. It's not, Magnus hasn't raised a large yeah. army to try and stop them. It's, like you said, 500 farmers who are, are killed. Yeah. And it's really interesting that sort of local dynamic. Yeah, exactly. And you should be aware of that, that, that the, the farming militia is a very important part of the defense system of Sweden during that time. It's uh, in the 13th century, it's uh, clearly regulated how you should participate in the defense of your own local province, but also how to raise troops for the defense on other places mm. in the country also. 
So, and that's up until the 15th, 16th century. Mm. It's very part, of, uh, important part of the defense of Sweden. Yeah, because we've seen, uh, I think everybody realizes very quickly, like you said earlier, how expensive mm. the more professional troops yeah. and knights, they cost a lot of money. So, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, yeah. And so uh, we mentioned that Magnus wrote this letter to uh, Gotland and to Visby about yeah. that there might be an invasion. So did the people of Gotland and Visby try to do anything in this time? Did they try and make any big preparations? Or Yeah, now we get into this part of the invasion. that We have a letter, we have a couple of other lines in the Chronicles, etc. Otherwise, we don't know so much specifically what they've done. And we need to do some connecting dots. Yeah. <laughs> that way you have these few lines, you have a couple of letters, uh, we have the laws that perhaps were used at the time. We don't know how, in what degree they were implemented and how they were actually used. But most likely... Um, from May, they did preparations. Uh, and what we see in the laws and also in the letter of warning uh, is that they should uh, put out guards. So they put out guards uh, outside the coast, uh, watching the uh, most likely uh, landing points, etc. And they, on Gotland, they actually had on the countryside, they should pay uh, a tax, a guard tax, to uh, pay the money for these ones that mm. were standing by the coast. So they had a system for that. Uh, and most likely they had some kind of master checking equipment, etc. during the spring and preparing for what would happen uh, then later in the summer. Mm. Yeah. And how would uh, the people in Visby find out that there was an invasion? Who, what were their sort of signals or yeah. uh, giant fires or just someone who runs really fast or gets on a horse to let people know? How does the information spread in this time when an invasion happens? It could be several uh, kinds uh, of system for warning. You could have some kind of fires by the coast. You also have like the churches. You have like 96 churches on the countryside where you both have bells. You can also, uh, they could have used fire baskets from the towers. So that could be for like raising the alarm fast. Something has happened on the island and you spread this by the system, the alarm through the island. But then to know exactly what happened, where they have landed, etc. Then you have need to... Uh, to send the budkabler, I don't know what you call yeah, that. Yeah, uh, the, the, the messenger. Or the, yeah, the, the messenger, yeah, the, the, where they the have a stick, camera, yeah. where you actually have uh, carved in what it's about. And that's regulated in the laws. Mm. That is uh, really serious. And it's used for a uh, different kind of reasons. Could be like this uh, invasion, could also be like uh, a murder or something else. Mm. You have a tradition if you have this budkabler, a piece of wood mm. uh, where you carved, uh, carved into it. Uh, the purpose of it uh, that should go through the island and after that you have like on Gotland uh, you have um, a division of the land that most likely are related to the military system it's uh, used in the laws like you, you divide Gotland in six parts uh, settinger in six uh, so Gotland was divided in two uh, settinger in the south two in the middle and two in the north and if we uh, think about the size of them, if they would raise uh, the troops, most likely they were, if you, we use modern term, like battalion size, mm. 400 to 800 men in each. They had uh, what equipment they should have. Uh, they should have uh, at least one uh, per farm, perhaps several men, should be armed with protection for the head, the upper body, they should have weapons. Uh, and that's regulated in the laws. But then you have the other ones in the population. When you should defend your home, your home area, then uh, everybody that's adults should mm. participate. And they were perhaps not so good equipped. Mm-hmm. 
that we will get into later. Yeah, we yeah. talk about it. That's good. So these people, they they know which the, which their battalions are, for example. Yeah. Um, do they practice very often? Are they are they yeah? Do they train? Do they know who they're going to be standing next to? Obviously, they yeah. would because they come from the same village and they'll meet them in the street and Actually, in day to day life. But do they practice fighting together as well? It could be some kind of master. Mm. Uh, likely they have some kind of master. Then in what degree they actually train fighting, we can't know that. Yeah. <laughs> actually, it would be great to know that. Yeah, But yeah. We, we can't say how, in what degree they actually train. But, and uh, the one that they most likely fighting besides were uh, most likely the one they were living in, in the, mm. in the local area. So you have the parishes, then you have the ting that's a level above that, and then you collect the ting to a setting. So you're most likely organized in that way also in the in the units. Mm. It's like uh, British World War One history. We yeah. had uh, these volunteer battalions that yeah. were called the POWs battalions, where it's basically just this town. Everyone gets together and fights together, and they they stopped doing that because everybody was dying, and it would yeah, exactly. destroy the whole town, and there's nobody left afterwards. Yeah, so, yeah, we're yeah. about the same system, mm. most likely. Yeah. But then, when the when the Danish troops land on Gotland, they don't, as we as you mentioned, there's other battles. It doesn't go straight to Visby. So no, exactly. Can you say what 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 did they start doing first? Uh, I would say the, the Danish side uh, landed, like I said, in the southwest part. Uh, the Danish force were, was most likely professionals, mm. been working with war for a, a long time. And the thing with the the Danish side, their army is that when they land, they are the whole army in one place. Mm. And that's the difference between the Gotlanders that are actually divided in six spots. And first they must, must know where are the Danes actually going? Where should we uh, gather our troops, uh, gather the different settings? So as long as the Danes move fast, it's very hard for the Gotlanders to actually get the troops together and meet them. So what's happened when the Danes landed is that you have one setting in that area, Heide setting, that's uh, in the western part. Uh, that could master, like I said, about 400 to 800 persons to meet this army of Danes that were most likely about one and a half to 2,000 persons. So they were outnumbered. Mm. So what happens is when the Danes, they move to uh, take the roads, inland roads, uh, to Wisby. They are stopped by Iman's Bridge. That's uh, a bridge uh, that crosses a stream. And in the east side of this uh, stream, you have a march, Fjälle March, uh, also in like Bogland. Uh, so he, apparently, he can't pass this bridge because it was defended by mm-hmm. this setting. And by Maria Lingström's archaeologist uh, survey, they have uh, actually found a battlefield when they fight through this march right. and uh, and passes it and then they have the battle continues on the north side uh, on dry land well wow, that's really impressive uh, yeah. to a to find it but but that they actually did it in real life as well that they yeah, decided exactly. to fight in this kind of terrain is yeah and this is also very unique because mm. it's not often you find a battlefield mm. uh, that are preserved but it could be like it's uh, been uh, farmland been a bogland that kind of environment would be really good for the artifacts that mm. the remains. So you have both like arrowheads, you got like 
fase för Armas etc till Founded Founded that battlefield så det är really unik uh, and after that battle uh, the Danes yeah they succeeded to cross this march it could have been perhaps another battle in that area uh, one chronicle mentioned that it's, it's continuing at another battle it could have been like if another setting arrives mm-hmm. too late and then you have another and perhaps you had some kind of fighting by the landing but that we don't know actually Uh, some later sources also uh, describe that. After the battle, uh, we could as- expect the Danes perhaps take uh, a day rest or something like that, and then they move on uh, against Visby. And the Gotlanders who survived these battles, they're presumably going to try and meet up with the other soldiers who haven't fought yet. And so the people sort of running back towards Visby, I guess, to, to yeah, hope exactly. that there's going to be some safe land there for them. Yeah, I usually try to stress that uh, the Battle of Visby occurred because of the that they lost in Mesterby. Mm-hmm. I guess the, the Gotlandic plan was to actually stop them there. And perhaps they were already marching against Mesterby when they get an, uh, uh, some kind of message that they lost and then they need a new place and then it ends up uh, outside of Visby. So it was most likely not a original battle plan to actually may have a battle outside of Visby. It mm-hmm. was a consequence of the fighting uh, that occurred the previous days. So it's the 27th of July when all these people arrive at Visby and yeah. uh, the, the battle is about to begin. But um, the doors are shut and uh, the, the gates are shut. And we've seen uh, in, in previous episodes in wars against Novgorod and things that castles and, and walls the, the size yeah. of Visby can hold out in sieges for a long time. So you'd think maybe that uh, no, coming into it for the mm. very first time, you think, well, why don't they just go inside the city and defend the yeah. city from that? So why don't why don't they open the gates? And, and now we get into this one of the really interesting part, I think, mm. because this with the closed gates. And um, this is a thing that... It's very strong in a modern narrative that mm. the, the city burghers were standing on the walls mm. and the farmers weren't let in. And this is actually a very late uh, 19th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was constructed in the late 19th century. And then it got really strong in the 1950s, 1920s. Before that, you didn't have that story mm. at all. It didn't exist. So there's no, it's not in chronicles or No, exactly. Like yeah. I don't know. It's a really modern, uh, strong modern narrative. Uh, and it's possible it happened. It could be that it closed the gates. But what I find interesting is that it haven't survived in the the rich legends. Mm. We have many, very many legends about the events of 1461. But you don't have anything like the city betrayed us. Mm. You have no legends about that. Yeah. And that's interesting if it actually occurred because you have all sorts of other kind of uh, legends about it. Of course, it could have occurred, but it could also be uh, that it could be a different uh, explanation why the battle was outside the walls. It could be, uh, there are several battles in the mid-14th century. There are a book by Kelly de Vries, mm-hmm. an American uh, historian, about, uh, oh, what's it called now? Infantry battles in the 14th century, something like that is called. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he describes about 10 battles in mid-14th uh, century uh, where you have uh, militia armies winning battles Mm. against about the same kind of forces that you expect the Danes. Uh, no, uh, with nobility, knights, etc. The whole Chablang. Uh, and they actually winning. And what's interesting is that uh, a common tactic is that you use some kind of flank protections. Mm, yeah. And you actually have one battle uh, outside Liege uh, in Wotem in uh, 13. 
46, I think is this. Yes, I think it's 1346, where you have uh, a militia that uh, position their forces in uh, moats outside the city wall in front of a gate. And they're actually winning against a noble German uh, mm. knight force that attacking them. And in that battle, they had some, uh, did some uh, fieldworks, they had dug holes, etc. So when the cavalry charge were coming, it get disturbed and it gets so disturbed so the militia actually left uh, the moats and attacked the attack and won. Mm. So I, I will lift up that it, it, there could be diff- other reasons mm. than the betrayal that they actually fought outside the walls. Uh, it could be that they actually chose to close the gates yeah. to take the fight outside. Uh, but then you also, if you discuss why shouldn't they be inside uh, the city walls? Uh, if you look at uh, Visby in the Middle Ages, it's about, they have about 30 to 40 percent of the whole population of Gotland actually living in the city. Yeah. And we don't know actually if they took part at all or not in uh, this battle. It could be that they didn't take part, actually were inside the walls, or they perhaps could have take, uh, taken part, but we don't know that. Mm. Uh, but reasons why they shouldn't uh, position the whole Gotlandic army inside the city walls could, for example, be that it was in midsummer, they uh, hadn't harvested yet. Mm. Perhaps they could get closed in inside the city walls. If the enemy would p- position themselves outside, the wall could be used on the other way around, mm. actually closing them in. Them in. Yeah. Yeah. And then you also have the farmer militia, their goal wouldn't be defending the city. Their goal would be defending the countryside. Mm. And it could be hard to defend the countryside from within the city walls. That, mm. that would mean that you actually left the countryside for pillaging mm. uh, from the Danes. Yeah. So that could may, be one part that they don't want to leave the homesteads to be, get pillaged. Yeah, because obviously, because these are local people, these aren't yeah. Swedish soldiers from uh, from Stockholm coming down. So yeah. they, if they're going to pillage the farm, it's going to be their own farm that is yeah, going to exactly. be pillaged. Yeah. And then it could also be other uh, explanations uh, to their behavior. It could also be like the previous conflicts you had in Gotland. Uh, the, the farmer militia had by arming up, actually meeting uh, the opponents, they had actually taking a stand and it had been more limited conflicts, what they had with them from previously would, uh, would be that by taking the fight, they could gain a good deal. Uh, they could keep their status as, uh, as strong farmers, etc. And that wouldn't happen in 1361. But they didn't know that b- beforehand. That was the result of the battle of 1361. But they could have that mentality going into the battle, that they could win something by actually standing up for themselves. Mm. That's, that's a really interesting sort of social way of looking at it. Yeah. Um, and then obviously the next thing that happens is there's going to be a battle. So uh, can you tell us a little bit more about what we know actually happened? Yeah, and the Battle of Visby is a hard one because we don't have the battlefield mm. as we have in Mesterby. In Visby they have buildings all over the place mm. for where the most likely battlefield is. And in the cases they actually found something related to battle, like arrowheads, etc., it could actually be from later fighting. Mm-hmm. Because you have uh, 
after this period, there's a lot of fighting on Gotland. Mm. Uh, so they could be from late 14th century, early 15th century, later 15th century, yeah. etc. <laughs> so we, we don't know uh, anything about a specific, specific battle. But what we could tell uh, from the mass graves and like studying other battles, like the Battle of Water, is that most likely it was actually in front of the gates. Uh, they were down in the ditches, uh, taking the stand there, and the Danes would attack in to them. And, of course, that's a strong defensive position. Mm. So it's hard to attack in with cavalry. T- like, going down in the ditches would be hard, because the defenders would actually be very solid, because mm. they can't go anywhere. They wouldn't run away, because they can't run away. Yeah. They, they are standing there, taking the fight. Uh, and most likely, the, the ones that's most fit for fight and have the most equipment were standing in the front lines mm. and then uh, in the back you most likely had the one with uh, younger ones the older ones the, uh, the ones with less equipment the ones with impairments uh, will be in the back because they were most likely not meant to actually fight they were perhaps there of other reasons to make uh, show their social status etc but what would happen this day was that they lost and most likely the Danes started to hammer them with uh, 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 crossbows. Uh, then they will then move in uh, into close fighting and close contact. Uh, and then the difference will really show between the forces. You have one experienced one that's done fighting for years. Mm. And then you had the other one that not had that kind of fighting. And that would mean that they would be cut down slowly through the lines. And in the end, everybody, almost everybody would have died. Mm. I think it was very few, if they were standing in front of that uh, city wall, that actually survived Mm. from the Gotlandic side. Yeah, because normally a lot of battles in this sort of period, actually, when you look at how many people died, it's not yeah. actually that many. It's no, sort exactly. of, especially uh, yeah, later, even later on in history, you say, oh, okay, 400 people died on this side and 200 people died on yeah. this side. And it was a crushing victory. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. uh, but actually not many people died, but the mass graves and they, they come for a reason. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And here we have uh, the proof that it was very bloody. It's like we, they dug up about 1,200 persons. But uh, all the graves, we have some lost graves and we have one remaining. Then you get up to about 1,800. And the sources talk about 2,000 dead Gotlanders. Then, of course, we have possible Danes, which mm. I think we will talk about later when mm. we get into the exhibition. Mm. And yeah, so before we go and actually have a look at some of the stuff in the exhibition, if you could give a brief summary, because Valdemar and the Danes win, but there's been a lot of stuff uh, in sort of Swedish uh, sort of traditional history, I guess. There's a giant painting which yeah, yeah. Uh, which shows you about what happened but didn't happen after the yeah. battle. So can you tell us a little bit about sort of the myth and the legend about what actually happens next? Yeah, yeah exactly. You have this famous painting. I think in the English it's called, called uh, King Valdemar holds uh, Visper for ransom. Mm. And it's actually a painting with uh, three big uh, beer watts. I mm. think it's called it in barrels English. Or, barrels or... Yeah, 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 exactly. Vats or rats, barrels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That should be filled uh, by the citizens. And of course that's... Uh, that painting from 19th century, I mm. think it's from 1870 or something. And of course, it didn't happen like that. That's pretty obvious because it's natural romantic painting. Uh, but most likely the city in some way needed to pay the way out. So after we had a battle, we know it took two days before you have uh, a charter of privilege from King Valdemar to the city. 
you had all the dead persons, about 2,000 persons lying around uh, in the summer heat. It's going to smell. You're going to smell and going to be messy. So, and, and what, what's interesting is that they actually uh, got buried in the convent. Mm-hmm. They also transported all of these ones to a holy area. So they in the convent of Sogbörja. They were dug about well, many graves, five, six graves, and buried them all. But of course, if you have so many persons, uh, it's hard to take off all the equipment. Mm. And you have, it's a lot of work transporting them. And most likely it wasn't the Danes transporting the dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they actually threw down some of them in uh, the graves with equipment on. Most likely many had their clothes on. You can see that there are by textiles, prints on the iron. Uh, and you also threw down some armors. You have these male coifs, uh, male hoods. That's uh, about 185 of them were mm. buried with. So, and that's a huge number of objects that actually ended up. But it's only about like 10-15% of everything that actually was there. Uh, none of the arms are actually in the graves. All the weapons were taken away. Mm. It's interesting because obviously the the armor is still going to be expensive as well. Those yeah. metal coifs and things, and to to have yeah. to to be able to think, okay, let's just get rid of it, even if even if there's 185 of them. Yeah, uh, and and that's I I think it's partly because some of them are most likely broken. When mm-hmm. I looked at the equipment, some of the coat plates are very cut up. So it's actually hard to... Uh, uh, I, I think they were broken when they threw down. Mm. Uh, and also I think the one that uh, were actually throwing them down into the graves had no gain to mm-hmm. actually doing uh, further work. Mm. But what would they gain if they collected this stuff? Yeah. It would most likely be put in a Danish pile yeah. that the Danes would take and it would not be the Danes burying them. Mm. It would be most likely people of Visby taking care of them. So I, I think they didn't do so good of a work they just mm. left some stuff and also like in the summer heat some of the stuff would be like the male hood would be hard to get off and it would be messy yeah. after a couple of days the historical equi- equivalent of when armies nowadays retreat they blow up their artillery and yeah. things to stop the enemy from using them so it's the same sort of thing but it just happens to be the easiest way was to, yeah. to bury it and yeah most likely so I think that's probably enough for downstairs should we go upstairs and look at things yeah sounds good well, and uh, we're now up in the uh, in the exhibition, and in some ways, it's not just the museum's exhibition, but it's also your exhibition in a way because you helped uh, set this all up in in some ways. Yeah, so it was because I actually started out. I was a full time officer, commission officer at the time, uh, and also a geeky nerd about uh, Middle Ages. I was uh, I'm a reenactor. Uh, so when they were doing this exhibition, we were actually doing. Um, uh, event on Gotland and uh, contacted the museum and uh, after that contact they wanted me to start working with them uh, both because I I know about material culture about arms and armor uh, and also as an officer that I had a bit other perspective on violence than the other ones so, so that, therefore I worked with this like I said a one and a half year uh, in this exhibition vision part time and where we are now is actually it's the first room where uh, the background to the invasion are given. Uh, and also about the modern uh, narratives about this event. So we have one big wall with a painting from uh, 1870. Valdemar holding Visby Forensa. 
where we have these uh, three barrels. That's on one wall. Uh, on the other wall, we had another painting that explains pretty much uh, the narrative in the 20th century. It's a painting with a big city wall. Uh, we have the city burghers standing, watching the battle outside, where we have the professional Danish army cutting down the unarmed Gotlanders. It should be noted that this painting is actually more about the Second World War than about the, what happened in 1961. It was made uh, as a statement about uh, Swedish policy of neutrality in the Second World War. But it reflects very well the modern notion about uh, what happened in 1961. And then this room also gives the political background also. Yeah, which we talked about uh, earlier. So should we go in and have a look at some of the stuff? And uh, now we're moving into room two, uh, when the preface to the invasion is addressed with both uh, a part of a medieval boat. It's actually a boat from Kalmar, uh, 13th century. And then we have one of the treasures. Because one of the reasons that Valdemar perhaps went to Gotland is that it was a very rich island. The farmers, it's not like, uh, if you read Togdeman's book from 39, he uses the word peasant. But it's actually not peasant, it's farmers. And it's well done farmers. Some of them lived in grand uh, stone houses. They had uh, silverware, gilded silverware even. There are about eight treasures, eight hoards found that relates to the 1460s. That most likely were dug down. And if uh, you look at these objects, it's really grand objects. It's not like the it's not the Monty Python pheasants we will see here. Uh, it's it's uh, farmers, uh, well done farmers, that been involved in uh, trade and that have a very rich material culture. Yeah, so it's, it's not just the fact that uh, the people in Visby have all the gold and the farmers, like you said, are Monty Python peasants rolling around in mud. The farmers are a well-to-do part of society as well. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it was a different... Uh, society, so it was not like all farmers were equal. You have about 200 stone houses, and the one that lived in those stone houses, or even like mansion-like uh, houses, uh, they were of course richer than the one that didn't live in grand stone houses. Yeah, it's like, just like today, there's lots of different, uh, <laughs> different people and di different uh, conditions that people live in. So now we're coming into sort of the, the main part of the room where there's uh, sort of everything here, really. We've got some skeletons and skulls and helmets and armor. And uh, so what, what would you say is the, the first thing we should uh, talk about when we look at these remains from uh, the time? The first thing, it's hard to lift up just one thing because I think it's here you see a lot of you have both the dead from the mass years uh, and we have tried to lift out some individuals representing different parts, one that perhaps could be a Dane, some uh, that uh, could be ordinary Gotlander and the objects that were found with them. Now it will start with some sound in the background yep. from the exhibition. Now the arrows fly. Just wait a minute till we have this attack, I think. We'll, we'll listen to see, because there's a, there's a wall which you can see sort of uh, some clips that come up. And so this is, we're lucky because there's no one else here, but we can still get to hear the, uh, the, the great sounds of this exhibition if they uh, start for us. 
Uh, something that could be said uh, just uh, like uh, a thing to note is that we both have objects from the gates, but we also have objects that not actually from the gates, like helmets, some weapons, shields, etc. That's the one of things that you don't find uh, in the mass case. But we, uh, it, we have some in the collections. We also borrowed in some of these objects to display uh, the kind of objects that you don't find in these mass caves. Another miscellaneous uh, object that could be interesting is like we have uh, a key and a ring. We have these kind of objects that you find that's pretty personal. Like a key, like they thought they were coming home, but they didn't. And now the troops are marching. That video looked like there was uh, some of your fellow reenactment uh, colleagues in there. Yeah, it was. It was my fellow reenactors, and I was actually at some of the, these f clips also. And as you notice, in the in the end, we also have these machine guns going, and that's to remind to, to connect the past to the present. Uh, this was a battle then, and it's yeah, we, they were persons, we were persons, we the same kind of humans as they were, and especially in these times, it's very relevant to look about the past and to look what happens around the world. Cool, and, and now we're, we're in front of the big, a big glass cabinet with a lot of different stuff that all looks really interesting. So let's uh, start with what we have in front of us. This cabinet is uh, filled with uh, plates, but also some male hoods with uh, the heads or the caniums still in them. And in front of it, it's actually... Um, a plate with uh, buckles, belt buckles. Uh, we have about 490, 500 belt buckles uh, in the mass case. And uh, they uh, demonstrate that most of the persons were actually buried with their clothes on. So they, they had belts on and also their clothes. One other interesting thing to note is two of these individuals with their male hoods on, uh, with the mouth open, uh, screaming in their death, is that two of these ones could be Danish. It's been done uh, isotope analysis on them, and it's likely that they're not uh, from Gotland, and it's most likely from Denmark. And one thing to, to think about is, if we in the future, with uh, our new methods of analysis, will demonstrate that pretty many of them will be actually not Gotlanders, how would, uh, would the, the view of the events change? How would the notion of the events of 1361 change? Is it uh, farmers getting slaughtered? Or is it actually, uh, would it change to uh, a pretty competent fighting force making resistance? That is stuff that could change our notion about the events could change in the future. And we just started with that one. And that would be really interesting to see how it changes. 
Yeah, that was actually going to be one of my questions in the sense of what could you think might change in the narrative and uh, are you expecting anything or, or what, would you, what would you love to find out? The individual stories of individual people can be so fascinating, but is there one part of the, the whole time or the, the battle that you would really like to uh, want someone to find out something about or even find out yourself? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's uh, like me that's working with, uh, a lot with the modern notion. Where the, where the Gotlanders is portrayed like the clear loser. What, what I think about is that it perhaps doesn't need to be like the one losing. That's the result of what happened that day. But it could be the other way around. But now they ended up uh, as the losing side. But that doesn't mean that they were not competent fighting force. So I would find it really interesting to get more information about the proportions of Danes versus Gotlanders. And then I think we should move on to the bones. There I have some more to talk about, about interesting results in the future. Yes, well, let's do that. Let's go and have a look at some bones. And I think that's really interesting about how you said about the more professionalization of uh, the image of a more professionalized Gotlandic force, about how that would certainly be the case if you if you mentioned earlier that if they chose to fight in front of the walls as a military decision rather yeah. than being forced to. And that's just, I guess that's all part of the narrative that you're you're looking into. Uh, yeah, and of course I, I, I'm creating another narrative. But uh, the more we search we do in the future, the, the more we can know about this. Uh, now we have moved to uh, room three that's actually about uh, research uh, where we display the uh, excavations uh, of the mass graves and different finds. Uh, and here we have one big, what do you call it? Uh, okay. Box. Or display. Display, design. yeah, yeah. It's, we, we've got one big display case, is what, what we've, uh, <laughs> we're going to call it for, for today. Yeah, exactly. Uh, with a lot of bones. So we just move to one side, we can see what's inside it. On one side, uh, we demonstrate all the different traumas that we see on the, uh, on the bones. And it's a lot of traumas. Uh, and, and they clearly uh, demonstrate the efficiency of the medieval weapons. We have uh, bones cut through totally. We have uh, canyons with like 13 injuries from different weapons, etc. And that's one part of the battle. That by these finds, we know more about medieval battles and the violence. But another part that's also displayed is, is the bones. And you can see traces of the lives. You can see traces of uh, previous injuries that uh, actually healed. Uh, we also see traces of uh, diseases, we see traces of uh, famine, uh, and we have like this bone. How would you describe this one? It's a knee. Yeah, it's a knee bone, or the, the top, the whole knee sort of joint, and then a bit of both uh, below the knee and above the knee. Yeah, exactly, and, and it, it's stiff in an angle. And these ones, with this kind of impairments, had been used to demonstrate how Gotland dragged everybody out on the battlefield. But like I try to discuss these individuals, you have the young ones, you have the elder ones, you have the one in impairments. What I would say is to be a part of the militia could as well be a demonstration of their position in their medieval society. To be in the militia demonstrates that you are a free man, that you are an adult that, and that you are a part of that community. So you can also take the other one around. Perhaps they wanted to actually participate. Otherwise you're not a part of the community.
Yeah, and especially when this was a real, like we said before, a community effort in the sense that, yeah, everyone, if, if you're if you're just going to stand back, uh, then the Danes will take your farm and and do whatever with it. And so if you're you're with with the forces, you're you're, you're being a part, active part of that community. Like you said, is there a difference between um, you mentioned some of the bones like might be Danish and might be Swedish, and you said about how old injuries? I know with some battlefield archaeology, you can look at the bones and say, okay, this might have been a professional soldier because he's had old wounds that have healed, and uh, he's got more wounds than other people. Is there a difference in in the types of injuries that you might expect from the different groups who are taking part? Uh, there are differences uh, between the different age groups. But one of the problems with this mass grave is that it's so huge. It's 1,200 individuals, and they uh, took it up in, from 1905 to uh, 1930. And they had a big problem handling all these bones. And we have, the only data we have is actually from the 1930s. So it really needs new research to go through the bones and see if we can find uh, more interesting stuff now with modern methods. Yeah, because everything. Yeah, every ten years, there's a new technique or a new new thing that we can use. So uh, great. Well, yeah, well, that's great. We've had uh, a great time walking around the exhibition here. We me, go back to Orsa in a few minutes, and we'll talk a bit more about our visit and uh, say thank you to everyone properly. But before we do that, I just say thank you very much, Thomas, for being here with us and spending so much of your time to talk about 1361, the background, and all of the stuff to do with uh, to do with this battle in Visby and the battles before it. So just yeah, thank you so much for your time. And thanks for listening. Well, that was such a great interview. Thomas was such a great guest. Yes, thank you again so much, uh, Thomas, for coming on the podcast. It was fascinating listening to your thoughts on the Battle of Visby, both from a military perspective, but also the societal side of everything. That's really what I took away most from the discussion and what I learned the most about the whole social side of being part of the farmer militia and the relationship between all these different groups of people who were involved, the old people and the young people who would have been fighting and all that sort of thing I found really interesting. Yes, I really enjoyed listening to the two of you. And thanks again to everyone at the Swedish History Museum, the comms team and the staff on the day for organizing Chris's visit, taking care of everything in advance and on the day, and for so kindly letting us in in the first place. Do give the museum a visit if you are in Stockholm. It's free for a start. And you can see for yourself all the great stuff Thomas helped to curate in the Battle of Visby exhibit. You can find out more about it on their website, historiska.se, which will be in the episode description as well. Yeah, the whole experience was really great, and I, I hope people like listening to it. And we'd also like to give a brief shout out to a few people who've been getting in touch recently on email and social media. Seems like there's quite a few people planning trips to Sweden at the moment. So I hope all you guys manage to make it to the museum too. And you never know, we might even uh, go back for something else on the podcast later on. I hope so. And that, that time I would get to go as well. Yeah, indeed, if we let you in. But yes, uh, just like those other people, do get in touch if you like. Let us know what you thought about this interview and uh, what Thomas was saying. And leave us a review on iTunes or just rate us on Spotify if you enjoyed us that much too. And uh, for now, thank you once again to Thomas for being such a great guest. And we'll see everyone next time for episode 60.
Oh, it's such a shame this episode wasn't episode 61. <laughs> yeah, we missed a trick there. Um, 1361. Um, but uh, yeah. That doesn't always add up. Uh, so for now, goodbye. Hey, Dor.